This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, Tommy's interview with London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who made time for us this morning to talk about President Trump's visit to the UK. By all accounts, going smoothly. He's <laughs> pumped about it. <laughs> Mayor Khan is. Uh, you'll also hear a conversation Tommy had with Rebecca Nagel, the host of Crooked Media's brand new podcast out today, This Land. I've had so many people text me this morning to say they were listening and loved it. That's fantastic. We're all listening to This Land. If you haven't subscribed yet, what are you even <laughs> doing? Uh, so be sure to listen through the entire podcast for Tommy's interview, and then go download that first episode. But first, we get a lot of news to get through, uh, from Trump's latest trade tax to his trip to the UK to all the latest 2020 news. Also, a reminder, we will be on the road this week. A lot of T-words. You're going to be able to hear our Thursday night show in Chicago on Friday, and our Sunday night show in Des Moines on Monday. And there's still tickets to come see us at those shows and in Minneapolis at crooked.com slash events. Going home to Des Moines. Home to Des Moines. Maybe I'll find the truck that I abandoned at a gas station in 2007. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Are yeah. Still kicking? Uh, I don't think so. It was a 1994 F-150 and the tranny went, so I just left it there. <laughs> this happened. Love it's got a show in Here's Minneapolis. Love it named me Klobuchar. Me and the club. <laughs> Love it in the club, one night only. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of great stuff going on this tour. Okay, let's get to the news. On Friday, Donald Trump announced that he will raise tariffs by 5% on all goods coming from Mexico, quote, until such time as illegal migrants coming through Mexico and into our country, all capital letters, stop. The president <laughs> said that if Mexico doesn't comply, he'll raise the tariff an extra 5% every month until it hits a maximum of 25%. Even Trump's own economic advisor recently admitted that con American consumers pay the price for these tariffs, which will affect everything from cars to electronics, computers, alcohol, lots of different shit. A lot of Guys, beer. what are the other potential consequences of Trump's new trade tax? Amazing leadership. <laughs> <laughs> everything getting better? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to make... It, <laughs> People keep saying, like, oh, avocado prices are going to... No, it's, like, mostly auto parts and, and all the beers we drink, Coronas, Dosequis. Like, a lot of consumer goods that a lot of people like are going to go up. If you live in Texas, a, a lot of imports from, from Mexico are going to be more expensive. And so, I don't know, big picture, this makes us look like a pretty unreliable trade partner 
writ large. He just negotiated the NAFTA 2.0, the USMCA, thought we had that behind us, and he just arbitrarily slaps escalating tariffs on Mexico to deal with a immigration problem that is actually coming from other countries in Central America. That seems crazy. Yeah, you hear a lot of, uh, when you read about analysis of this, people say, oh, it's going to disrupt the supply chain, which is something everyone's like, what the fuck does that mean? Thousands of Here, auto parts. Yeah, here's an example of that. The American auto industry, as you just said. they uh, The American auto industry right now is facing the most layoffs over the last four months that they've seen since the Great Recession, um, which is when the auto industry uh, almost collapsed completely. And a lot of parts in American cars are imported from Mexico. And that happens, that, that's what they mean by when they say the supply chain. There's all these American manufacturers, the head of the American Manufacturing Association said there would be devastating consequences for American manufacturers because of this, because so many different parts and so many different uh, manufactured goods in this country come from Mexico. And not just come from, they go back and forth. Like yeah. we, we've built a big system, yes. uh, and it's not a perfect system, and there are plenty of reasonable criticisms, and it's interesting that you see some of the criticism of Trump's proposed replacement for NAFTA kind of coming at him saying things like, you know, we don't know this is going to be a good enough deal for American workers. Everybody recognizes that there's been blowback because of NAFTA. But one of the things we built is an international system across our southern border where it's supposed to be open. Things go back and forth. Products start in Mexico, end up in the U.S., go back to Mexico to be completed. Products start in Mexico, you know, they, uh, products start in the U.S., go to Mexico, come back. Like things move across the border as they're constructed. As we built this international system of, of trade in which uh, borders are supposed to be more open, so, so to introduce this very simplistic notion that we're just going to stick a, a, a tax on things coming in uh, elides how complicated international trade has become, in part because of the, you know, agreements the United States has been privy to for the last 30 years. Yeah. I mean, on a micro level, we are just making it really hard to do business. Like, for example, GoPro just moved a bunch of its operations from China to Mexico to avoid tariffs. And then they wake up in the morning uh, and they read about this new tariff on, on Mexican manufacturing. And how are it's we like, going to see what happens when a dog <laughs> goes to the Grand Canyon? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, on a on a macro level, like this could actually start to hurt the economy. Uh, you know, like yeah, it's been weird watching the trade war unfold because there were a lot of dire warnings, and then the markets just kind of absorbed the slow escalation. We're all a bunch of boiled frogs. But Josh Barrow wrote a smart piece this weekend where he talked about how some economists think that the latest iteration of China tariffs and Mexico tariffs could hurt GDP up to a percentage point, which is like. That's a big deal. And for someone, if I were Donald Trump and I were trying to run a re-election campaign, I think I'd be a little more worried about the general economic sentiment in the country than whether my base thinks I'm mean enough to immigrants. I feel like he's really solidified the case that he's a horrible person to anyone <laughs> who lives south of the border. Yeah, I don't think he understands the economics <laughs> no, he around trade, to say, the, to say the least. But yeah, J Joshua's piece was very good because I think up until now, a lot of these tariffs have affected, I think he said, like, you know, 7% of the imports or 10% of the export, exports or some, some low percentage of yeah. imports and exports in the country. So, therefore, it's a small percentage of the overall economic output. Um, but when you're getting up to – if we get up to 25% tariffs for Mexico and 25% yeah. tariffs for China, which he has threatened to China too, now you're talking a significant chunk of the economy. I mean, already American house – the average American household has paid about $831 more because of higher prices due to tariffs. And they think that these new, there's an estimate that these new tariffs could cost 755,000 American jobs Jesus. in Mexico. That is a lot. Yeah. That <laughs> evaporates any value from his crappy tax cut for the average family. And, and it also, I mean, yeah, Trump's 
numbers on trade. I mean, Harry Enten from CNN did a piece on how Trump's approval on trade issues generally are actually down from where he started. So people aren't looking at his track record and thinking this is going well. In fact, it's hurting. How do you think Democrats should talk about this and how much should they talk about this? Because I do think, you know, it's, it's tough. Obviously, the consequences could be devastating to the economy. It could erode Trump's advantage on the economy that he's had in polls, as you just pointed out with, uh, you know, uh, Harry's analysis on his numbers on trade. Um, but as we also know, trade is sort of a complicated issue to talk about. And, you know, what do you think Democrats should do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, I think it's similar to immigration in that I think you can talk about this as a strategy that's failing, right? Like, you know, he's getting some – as long as we're in the trade war, he can claim any problem you have with China or any problem you have with Mexico is why he's doing this, right? But then you go down the list of the things he's trying to achieve with China and and – He's just not getting them. He's not getting what he wants out of this trade war. You look at what's happening with Mexico. He's now set a goal that uh, uh, I'm going to put a tariff on this unless you deal with a systemic, multi-decade long failure of our immigration system. So I don't know how you can look at that. I mean, he may be able to declare some kind of victory if there's sort of a natural trend in a reduction of migrants trying to cross the border because of the, the seasonal change in the way people come to this country. But for the most part, you know, you look at the actual list of things he wants. They're not totally crazy demands, right, to have Mexico do a better job securing its southern border or to have Mexico. Uh, uh, um, I can't remember. I'm, you know, for example. Well, you're not remembering because he wouldn't. He didn't lay them he out didn't leave them out. in any way. <laughs> Mexico has no idea what standards it has to reach right now. They're sending their foreign minister to the United States for some emergency meeting to try to figure out what the fuck they have to do. Even Mulvaney said when asked, sort of, what is the goal of this set of tariffs? He says, oh, we're going to evaluate that on an ad hoc basis. They want to see Mexico do something to reduce the number of migrants coming in to do something along its southern border to help them with the asylum situation along the southern border, which Mexico has been loath to do. But it's they don't know what they're supposed to do to prevent this outcome from happening. Right. Mulvaney went on um, Meet the Press, a bunch of Sunday shows this weekend, to, one, humiliate himself further by just being an asshole and pretending that it's okay to move a ship named after John McCain because your oh, boss right. is a prick. Forgot about that two, one. he said that the catalyst for the surprise tariff on Mexico was there was a video of a thousand migrants coming from Tijuana across the border into the U.S. in this major incident. And that just that's, like... That's how you make your trade policy. Yeah, right. It just got Trump's racist dander up. Uh, and so that is, you know, like... So I guess the case I would be making is about immigration, which is, you know, the China trade war is a whole separate problem that might create massive economic problems. This incident with Mexico feels like he has set up a situation where he's going to get some minor concession and then declare a win on it. I think we need to be making a case against him that he's been president for a couple of years and his immigration policies have failed. The yeah. maximum cruelty policies have failed. The Democrats need to go after and just hammer him on that. Yeah, I think I would make it, I would uh, link it to a broader economic case against the president. If I were Democrats, I would be doing events with the farmers in the Midwest who've been hurt by this. I'd be going to auto plants right now and going with and doing events with auto workers. I'd be talking about how, you know, average families... Auto workers, farmers, they're all being hurt by Trump's economic policy while uh, CEOs, big corporations have never done better. You know, there's a study out last week that corporations paid $90 billion less in taxes as a result of this tax cut. And, you know, profits are doing better than ever. And uh, they all use the, ta the tax cut for stock buybacks. And everyone's doing great on Wall Street. And most of the people in the middle of the country are getting fucked. And, and, and for Mexico, too, it will devastate a lot of these uh, border communities, uh, communities that deal with a lot of trade from Mexico. They're, they're our number one trading partner. Um, the other question is, can the Mexican government stop asylum seekers from traveling through their country to the U.S.? 
I don't really know the answer, but I, I don't think that a punitive reaction that punishes the country of Mexico is going to solve a much broader systemic problem that starts with incredibly unsafe Northern Triangle countries where people are going to leave no matter how mean we are to the Mexican government, period. Yeah. And, and, and there's an international right to asylum, to seek asylum that Mexico wants to honor. <laughs> it's also, you know, you know, we've seen a few immigration plans from O'Rourke, from Castro, that include as part of their plan uh, to help countries in Central America and to help Mexico deal with the flow of people. There's a kind of <laughs> Trump's all stick, no carrot, right? And it's also it's also um, like slapdash and mercurial. Like there is a, you could imagine a disciplined right-wing revanchist administration that hates brown people with a sophisticated plan to try to kind of punish Mexico if it doesn't help while providing rewards to Mexico to try to help them manage the process to like actually achieve a policy outcome. But when it comes to trade deals, where it comes to the Iran deal, when it comes to the Paris Accords, there's no, there's, it's all stick, no carrot. It's all just you shoot the hostage. You punish Americans without a clear plan for how to get out of it. You pull yourself out of the deal without a clear plan to replace it with something better. Um, that's, that's what he knows how to do. He knows how to lash out. He knows how to walk out of a room, yeah. right? It's what he'll do with Pelosi. It's what he'll do with anybody. Donald Trump knows how to walk out of a room, but he doesn't know how to actually make a deal in the room. Except that, like, there's no – in this situation, there's no room to walk out of. Like, the border is still there. The problem is still <laughs> going to happen. You know, so, like, you're right that that's what he's trying to do. Vox suggested that Trump's trying to get Mexico to sign what's known as a safe third country agreement, which says that – Basically, Mexico is a safe place for people fleeing from Central America to just stay. Therefore, those Central American migrants fleeing uh, will not be entitled to asylum hearings. That's a pretty devious, cruel way to treat a bunch of people because I don't think anyone's suggesting that just parking in Tijuana is remotely safe. That's an incredibly unfair, unsafe thing to those people. Yeah. Um, so in addition to his trade wars with China and Mexico, uh, our chief diplomat is doing his best to fuck with politics in the UK during his visit there this week. Fun. In an interview with the Sunday Times, Donald Trump said Britain should be okay with a no-deal Brexit and walk away from the EU if they can't get favorable terms. Prime Minister Theresa May is scheduled to step down. The list of those angling to succeed her includes former Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, who Trump praised during his interview. The president also said that Nigel Farage should be involved in the Brexit negotiations. <laughs> Tommy, can you talk about the state of Brexit politics right now? And what's going on in the race to succeed Theresa May, just so we have some setup for Trump's visit? Sure. I mean, Theresa May worked for years to try to put forward a Brexit plan and try to get that through Parliament, and it was rejected several times. <laughs> so she finally decided to step down. And now there's a race to figure out to see who will lead uh, the Tories after her. So they'll, they'll be chosen by... Um, you know, let, let's call it, let's say, uh, superdelegates. Okay. Uh, a, a older, whiter, more conservative faction will figure out who the next prime minister is uh, on the conservative side. So it will. Un, it's not likely to be someone good, but that's not going to solve the problem of Brexit. I mean, they keep punt, they keep blowing through these deadlines with the EU, and I think the question is whether they'll ever be able to get a deal through, uh, whether they'll have to vote again on Brexit and throw it back to the people and see if they still really want it, or. Uh, have what was called a, a hard Brexit, where they just haven't negotiated any of the relevant customs or border issues or anything that would, you know, anything you would normally do during a bilateral relationship with another country, which would just be like an economic catastrophe. It would just be as much uncertainty as you can imagine. So it's an ongoing total mess. Yeah, I was going to say, what are the consequences of a no-deal Brexit or a hard Brexit that they're talking about? Is that just, I mean... I don't know all of them, but like one example is what happens to Northern Ireland, right? Right now between Ireland and Northern Ireland, there's an invisible border. Um, 
because uh, Northern Ireland's part of the UK, the Republican, uh, Republic of Ireland is an independent country and part of the EU. If the UK exits the EU, you need some sort of border between the two countries all of a sudden for customs and whatnot. But that's like a incredibly fraught thing to do because the Good Friday Agreement, which ended the you know, decades of terrorism in Northern Ireland uh, was designed to soften that border and increase access and travel between the two sides. So you could reignite the troubles, reignite the IRA and all the things that we saw in the 90s and 80s that were so horrifying. So like there's all these second or third order effects. There's all these massive economic uh, impacts of a, a hard Brexit. And like, I don't think anyone can really predict what all of them are. Uh, I certainly can't, but it would, uh, no one thinks that that's a good way to run a railroad. And what is Trump trying to do here, aligning himself with bozos like uh, Boris Johnson and Farage? What what is he? Uh, he's he's now he's you know interfering in British domestic politics. What's his uh, what's his goal here? I that's a hard question. <laughs> yeah, I, is he aligning with these people? He's because, aligning with the people that like him yes, against the people that right. don't like him. Is this like you know right wing populists around the world or his buddies kind of thing or what's going on there? I mean, I, look, your guess of what his motivation is uh, is as good as mine. I mean, he basically said, Nigel Farage came to an event I did. He was really nice. <laughs> I liked him. It was exactly what Lovett just yeah, said. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's very complicated. He's sympathetic <laughs> to people who are nice to him and who are racist. So yeah, it's, right. uh, it kind of works itself out. Sadiq Khan's op-ed, uh, Mayor Khan, the mayor of London, we talked about, uh, the first question I asked him, really tied Trump to other far-right leaders in Europe, like Viktor Orban and, and Marine Le Pen, and, and sees this as a scary global movement. I think he's right. We were talking about this before the pod, Tommy, but I, I find myself very unsettled by Mayor Khan's op-ed, reading it, agreeing with all of it, but then realizing that he's writing an op-ed about a foreign leader who is our leader. Like It was very, it, it was very sort of upsetting to see a foreign leader talk about the United States and the leader the United States has chosen yeah. um, in a way that is completely accurate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look. I mean, he said, that, he said that our president that. is a global threat, which, you know, I believe too, but when someone else says it that's not in your country, you're like, I, oh, yeah. It was a little weird for me to interview him because I agree with what he wrote, but it is a strange feeling to uh, talk to a, a foreign leader about a, a really rough criticism of an American president. That said, I think... One of the things that we failed to do is just speak as honestly and bluntly as, as he did in that op-ed. Yes, Certainly his own that, party has. And I thought the same he, thing. He made a global case for why nationalism in these far-right parties are dangerous, and I think it was very compelling. It was actually so, a case that I was like, I, could, I, I would love to hear a Democrat make a, a case this clear. I'd love to hear Democrats <laughs> make all kinds of clear cases. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Well, no, it, there, was, um, uh, somebody, there, were, there was a conversation – about some of the protests that are happening in London against Trump. And what I appreciated about one of the organizers is they said, you know, we're not doing this, we're not opposing and protesting Trump because we don't like America. We feel as though we're doing it because we want to, because we actually like America and we like American values and we don't believe this president represents those values. So I'm glad yeah. that that is at least part of this. You know, it is. Yeah. And Mayor Khan made that point as well right. in his op-ed. And it, you know, it's a, it's shameful. It is shameful to send Donald Trump to represent us. It is shameful that there's a giant uh, balloon baby flying over London of our president in a fucking diaper. It's all it's all embarrassing. It's embarrassing to have him <clears throat> call Meghan Markle nasty. And it's embarrassing yeah, we even talk about that. to have him uh, compare Sadiq Khan to Bill de Blasio because, like, no one deserves that. And it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs>
I'm I just know. kidding. Bill de Blasio's response to that, though, going back to the fucking condon. hashtag condon. Stop well. saying condon. Stop saying condon. What are you, you fucking uh, like Krasenstein brother here? Yeah. Yeah, the third, the third Krasenstein? <laughs> Look, I, I, I think that, like, we, and, I, and I talked about this in there. I mean, I don't think that Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage is going to upend the historic relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. There are cultural ties. Everyone knows someone who lives in the United Kingdom and vice versa. So that's there. But like Theresa May didn't need to give him a state visit. That was a naked attempt to kiss his ass and curry favor. And, you know, he's only the third American president to receive the honor of a state visit. He's hanging out with the queen at Buckingham Palace today. He's got a private lunch with her. I wonder what the hell they're going to She doesn't deserve that. But the (laughs) the parliament was like, no way in hell you're addressing this body because they would have booed him out of the place. So look, democracy is a bitch. You know, like people are going to say what they think about you and and that's how how it is. How does the queen get stuck with that meeting of everyone in that country? Listen, (laughs) she survived the fucking blitzkrieg. She can get through. (laughs) She can get through a lunch with an asshole. It's fine. It's not. She's she's, probably had a few. Right. Not, yeah, right. Not the first rich American prick she's had to sit across the table from. She's been around for fifty fucking years. I think she'll be fucking or British. fine. Or Brit- yeah, we're yeah. British. Yeah. Um, anyway. I just it's it's um it's a small thing. Obviously, these are very big, important issues. But there is something. It's a it's a bit like um we're you know we're dating someone and we realize that if we weren't dating them, we'd be just constantly making fun of them. <laughs> You know yeah, I, mean? I think I don't think we've held. But, you know, but it's like it's like it's 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 <laughs> sad to know. Program. It's sad to know that like you know you're sitting at the queen with your 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 uh, your boyfriend, and then you just know that when the queen goes back, she's gonna make fun of your boyfriend, and you kind of agree. You know, you just sort of <laughs> listen. I listen. I I I think he fucking sucks too. I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't. You know. Yeah. Look, I mean, the, the tradition of politics ends at the water's edge. I guess was there for a reason because it kind of feels right. It feels weird to be criticizing him as he's over in London, but we're past the point of no return. He deserves it. I don't think that we can sit quietly while he tries to spread his brand of far right nationalist garbage politics. Like it's it's actually dangerous. Steve Bannon's sitting over there in some European castle trying to they're trying to get a rush into yeah they are trying to evict him from they're trying to evict him from some castle they're trying to fund and 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 help these kind of parties uh get power all over the continent and it's dangerous yeah yeah i mean you know it's a shame that the american president is a threat to the global world order and one of the most dangerous and evil people we've ever empowered but uh anyway on to 2020 on to 2020 (laughs) Um, at least they didn't let him stay at buckingham Yeah, that was a that's, that's true. Win for humanity. It's, un, uh, it's, it's under construction. That's can't do the so accent. funny. Um, it's uh, under construction. I can't. Joe that's a Russian. Like a, yeah, that was a what Russian, is British accent. A Russian accent. Can <laughs> we get Ira in here? To I do can't his do it. His British is worse accent. than mine. <laughs> so they say cheerio. I um, did Russian by mistake. It's fine. All right. Uh, before we move on to 2020, I do want to mention the mass shooting that occurred in Virginia Beach on Friday, yeah. where a dozen people were killed and many more were wounded. The shooter, who was a municipal employee, also died and was found with a 45 caliber handgun extended magazines, and a silencer. Uh, And just as a reminder about how important state and local elections are, the Washington Post reported that in January, Republicans in the Virginia legislature defeated a bill that would have banned the sale of high-capacity magazines like the ones the alleged shooter used in Virginia Beach. Guys, do you think one of the reasons that the coverage of mass shootings like these moves on so quickly now is because our politics around gun control is so stuck? I mean, it did strike me as incredible that this happened on a Friday afternoon and even by Sunday, 
you didn't see the Sunday shows all about this. You didn't hear many people talk about Democrats it. Democrats like, at the at the uh, uh, California convention, which we're about to talk about. None of them really. I think Cory Booker mentioned it. Cory Booker should get a lot of credit because yeah. he his whole his, most of his speech was about it. So. But most people just decided to not. No, talk they all about put out it. their statements on Friday, and then that was that. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's, you know, we we tend to sometimes get the direction of problems and solutions backwards in that you know people tend to care about a problem when they believe they can solve it and, and so i think there is a sense of hopelessness creeping in there's also just this natural equilibrium which is a heinous thing but the more mass shootings there are the less deserving they are of coverage in the sense that they are more common and less newsworthy and yet also at the same time the more coverage mass shootings get the more that may lead to the inspiration of other mass shooters so we're in this sort of delicate murder equilibrium where when they get more coverage they start to happen more when they happen more they get less coverage and we're just sort of trapped in this cycle yeah it's also it's just hard to it's hard to shock us anymore i mean the the las vegas shooting killed 58 people and wounded 422 or more if you count people harmed in the panic and the stampede that resulted in it. It's like if an event that shocking and terrifying doesn't change something immediately in our country the way New Zealand's uh, horrific shooting at Christchurch did, like what the fuck will? So it's hard for me to even – I just get so angry when I read these stories and I feel incredibly frustrated and and angry about it. But like I don't know. I guess I should focus my rage and say one – Credit to Cory Booker for making that speech at the California Convention because he he had the chance to make the case for himself and uh, his campaign to 5,000 devoted activists, and he instead decided to make it about the issue of violence and how we respond as a nation and come together and not about himself. And I really think it was it was impressive and inspiring and, and good for him. Two, I think we should um, talk more about some of the candidates who put forward proposals to take executive actions to deal with gun violence. Uh, so Kamala Harris has been out in front of that and it's important. Third, I mean, I think it's, we should thank Mike Bloomberg and every town and moms demand action for funding, uh, and then working 24 seven on these campaigns to, uh, put in place common sense gun safety laws and to go right at the NRA because, because of them, because they're funded and financed and where there's grassroots energy behind them, we're actually making progress for once and it doesn't feel as shitty as it used to. But, you know, look, I didn't necessarily want to talk about this issue today because it is so hard and it does feel really defeating at times. Yeah. And I, I do think you mentioned this, Tommy, but the, the, the good news in this cycle is I think the Democratic presidential candidates are talking more about gun control in general and, and more importantly than talking about it, putting out policy proposals to address the issue more than they have in the past. Booker wants to establish a national gun licensing program. Um, Kamala has talked about a series of executive actions. She'd take mandating background checks and banning imports of AR-15s. Swalwell, who's made reducing gun violence a centerpiece of his campaign, has proposed a mandatory gun buyback program for military-style weapons. Um, so we have, a, we have a couple candidates here who have proposed some pretty far-reaching things. I do think, like you said, Tommy, the ones that are proposing executive actions like Kamala are mm-hmm. most interesting to me because... You know, we lived through the Obama administration, and we say this all the time, but when a universal background check bill that was sponsored by Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, conservative Republican Senator Pat Toomey, couldn't get through the fucking Senate, mm-hmm. I don't know what can get after through. After Sandy Hook. After Sandy Hook. Yeah. After, after children were murdered. Uh, I don't know what can get through Congress. And so I do think that when it comes to executive actions the next pres- on, on gun control, the next president, Democratic president should have a whole slew of them ready. Um, the other thing, and this goes back to the Virginia case, is, you know, we started this fuck gerrymandering fund um, to 
help flip state legislatures uh, so that they're democratic, so that we can redraw these districts. But the other reason that state and local elections are so important is because some of the most sweeping, effective gun control measures that have passed over the last couple of years have happened on the state level. And in the Virginia legislature right now, we're talking about a few seats um, for Democrats to take control of the whole legislature and then also have to take control of the governorship. And imagine what can happen if a Democratic legislature and a Democratic governor can sign a bill on universal background checks, on banning high-capacity ammo. Um, that, that makes a real difference. So you can donate to Fuck Jerry. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash fuckjerry. Fuck Jerry with a G. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, let's talk about uh, the 2020 primary. The Democratic candidates descended on California over the weekend for the state's Democratic Party convention and move on's big idea summit. California is obviously home turf for Senator Kamala Harris, who had a big presence at the convention and got a great reception. But the biggest applause went to Senator Elizabeth Warren, who also turned out 6,000 people at a town hall in Oakland on Friday night. Uh, Warren also appeared to take a swipe at Joe Biden during her convention speech when she said, quote, some say if we all just calm down, the Republicans will come to their senses. But our country is in a time of crisis. The time for small ideas is over. Bernie Sanders also took a shot at Biden, Biden by noting his absence at the convention and saying, quote, we cannot go back to the old ways. We've got to go forward with a new and progressive agenda agenda. Um, let's start with Kamala Harris. Between polling and the convention this weekend, it seems like she has a little bit of a home turf advantage, but she certainly doesn't seem like the front runner uh, here in California. What do you guys think of that? And, and what do you think of what she had to say this weekend and, and her presence at the convention? 
Just in terms of hometown at home field advantage, I do think just politics is nationalized, and I just don't think that that's as important as it once was. And of all states, California is a tough one to have a home state advantage in because it's like you know, yeah, it's a, a gigantic a lot of people it's like larger than most countries, so it's hard to have a home state advantage. I think as a senator, and, anyway. and, I, and I don't think that's just going to apply to her. I think we'll see a similar. You know, there'll be questions about whether Elizabeth Warren has any kind of home field advantage in New England, and I think that's hard to justify. So I just think, in terms of this idea of home field advantage, I think that that's not as important as it once was, just as we're all watching the same news at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think people were making note of the fact that it was also San Francisco-based events, and and that's where she came up uh, politically. So people thought that, you know, you might have a political organization to really pack those rooms, and it didn't seem like she did that. That said, I don't think we should make too much of the uh, enthusiasm or lack thereof from like 6,000 people in a room. It's a, it's a small sample. What I noticed about Warren's speech that impressed me was I thought that she didn't just do a litany of Trump attacks and state a bunch of things that every single Democrat in the race stands for. She made a broader case that was about corruption in Washington. And I thought that actually had people revved up and, and really excited. And, and Booker did a similar thing. Like he made a, a much broader speech that was a, a critique of a, a brand of politics. It was a critique of inaction. It was a critique of thinking small. And I thought that seemed to really impress the crowd. It's interesting. We're going to have a lot of these. Um, they're known or they have been known in the past as cattle calls um, where you have a bunch of Democratic candidates at one event and then everyone compares them. Right. And um, so we're going to have a whole bunch of these in the primary in a field this crowded in a primary that's become this nationalized. It becomes even more imperative to stand out um, at these events. And the question is, how do you stand out? And you can stand out by making a case for your candidacy that differentiates you from the rest of the field, that tells a story about why you should be running and implicitly talks about why other candidates shouldn't. And you saw Warren, Bernie, uh, to some extent, Buttigieg did this as well, sort of take jabs at Joe Biden or the centrist candidates in the field trying to start drawing lines. Kamala sort of went up there and she, you know, she probably had the biggest applause line of the weekend when she said, you know, we need to impeach Donald Trump, but that was an applause line. And you don't, you, I don't really know what the rest of, you know, the rest of her speech was more the standard democratic fear. And a lot of the candidates did that as well. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I do and think right. impeach point, Donald Trump is this point is sort of just something you throw on at the end just to get the crowd amped and she just did to get the energy up. and she did and she did you know it's interesting I feel like a lot of the conversation about the Warren crowd in Oakland was about the comparison to Harris but I think it's actually less important for what it means for Kamala and more what it means for Warren I do think you know I noticed this on the road they're all you know a crowd is a, a self-selecting sample and it all should be taken with a grain of salt but I do think there is a kind of enthusiasm for Warren that is growing and maybe not manifesting in the polls, but there does seem to be a kind of excitement about her candidacy that I think is masked by a little bit of the worries about her electability and all those conversations that we've been having. Um, but when you see a crowd that big, I even think when you see the response to like when she talks about pride, when she tweets out a gif of herself at a pride parade, there's a kind of love for her, uh, amongst a set of Democrats that I think is interesting and important. And I think the question is, that I'm always trying to figure out, is how big is that set of Democrats? Because, you know, one of my complaints about punditry before we started doing this was that 
it's a bubble, right? Of course. And our crowds are self-selecting. The people who show up at a California convention are very self-selecting. And, you know, like you said, when you look at the polls, it hasn't necessarily materialized, though she's been gaining in the polls. So mm-hmm. the question is, does the does the, the media coverage she's getting, which has been very positive lately, does that start translating into movement among the polls from people who aren't paying attention to the race quite as closely as we are or some of the activists in the mm-hmm. Democratic base? That's, I think, what we have to figure yeah. out. And, and I, I suspect it will because it tends to be a lagging indicator. But I, I think the elephant in the room, or in this case, not in the room, was Biden. He didn't speak at the event. Yeah. Uh, and that was certainly noted by some of the speakers. And then uh, the Young Turks did an interview with Bernie where they basically said, you know, do you think that if Biden is nominated, it could lead to a defeat like 2016? And Bernie said, I fear that it could be. I really do. I fear that you could have a campaign without a lot of energy, without a lot of excitement. And that seems like that's the case a lot of these guys are going to make against Biden, that he is uh, centrism or that he is the safe choice. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know that if Biden is not in these rooms making the the case in response, he's going to lose that fight. So I'm wondering when they're going to have him out there or what the argument is not to have him at these major events where you're talking to some key activists. Yeah, I also thought there's an, I wonder what you guys think about the other dynamic is the uh, Bernie Warren dynamic because, uh, you know, they have, you know, they're both progressives. Uh, they're sort of going after some of the same pool of voters, though I, I imagine both of them would say their pool is much larger than just progressives. But you see them both trying to go after Biden because they it benefits both of them to be the one who's taking on Joe Biden because they get more media coverage. But how do they differentiate from each other or do they even need to at this point? I, if I were the, the thing that I found interesting is I do that 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 multiple candidates have all at the same moment realized that it's that Joe Biden can serve as a stalking horse for what they're running against yeah. is really, really dangerous for Joe Biden. And, you know, it is like that that is going to be something that you can start seeing chipping away to support, chipping away to support. And to me, it is actually really effective for them. So it makes sense to me that Bernie and Warren would kind of make their same critique at the same time for a while. I don't know if at some point that shifts, but for now, when they when the biggest pool of voters is sitting in the Biden number, like that just makes a lot of sense. And the, the danger there is, and we've seen this happen in previous races, if you're the one who is most strident going after the front runner, sometimes that could damage you. Because remember, whether Joe, you know, whether you like Joe Biden or not, his approval ratings among Democrats are very high. And so most Democratic voters, if you ask them, even if they don't want to support Joe Biden, they like Joe Biden. And so you have to be very careful at how you attack Joe Biden or how you draw contrast with Joe Biden. It's like the it's like Veep when they just they're both they just want somebody to launch the negative attack, but right, neither yes. one of them wants to do it. <laughs> yes. I do I could see this ending up though with just like with uh, kind of using Bernie as a kind of battering ram, and they're all kind of like grab onto the back of his jacket and just sort of run forward, pushing him ahead like a like a like a what's that what's that the thing at the front of a locomotive called cow catcher, <laughs> you know, just sort of knocking off things. Cow catcher? That's never heard of that. Isn't before. that called a cow catcher? The little thing in I front of a train? Know. Cool, cool. That's dark. Sorry, I'm salt of the earth. I know what those things are. called. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it doesn't seem like Warren's very afraid either, though. No, she's, and, yeah, she's are, the cases are different. Warren and and Bernie are sort of making cases from the left, although even though their cases are different. Warren's is about the system and sort of Washington and the system. Bernie's is more about progressive ideas. And then Buttigieg's case is more past future. Uh, and it was interesting because it made me think of Obama's case in 08 against Hillary was sort of a combination of past future and running against the system. It was a kind of a combination of Warren and, and Pete's case. I can, see the, uh, I can see it being very useful to all the candidates to have someone out there saying, 
the Biden electability argument is actually quite weak and dangerous. And, and, and that being valuable as other candidates are making a more substantive policy case. I yeah. just think that's that is a like it, it clicked for me as I was seeing this week because like that is that is an assault on Biden uh, in all directions. Yeah. Um, none of the blowback falling on just one of his opponents. So that to me, like this nominee, he can have it. You know, he can go out and win it. It really is there for him. And the burning critique to me is so important. Like, what are you going to do to like get young people excited about your candidacy? Like, what are you going to do on policy? What are you going to do in terms of the tenor of your campaign to kind of show people that you're not just going to play it safe, that you're going to kind of lead this big movement? Yeah. And also, like, what's your theory of what's wrong with our political system today? Uh, <laughs> HuffPo had a, a funny story that Joe Biden has been saying, this is not your father's Republican Party since 2006. <laughs> Which, it's Honestly, always been true. Well, yeah. and, they, and he probably stole it from the, what's, this is not your father's Oldsmobile ad back in God knows when. Oh, yeah. So those things, <laughs> these things are sticky. And he's right. And, and look, it's better that he's saying that than saying Republicans are going to come to their senses and have an epiphany uh, once a Democrat wins and start working with us. <laughs> I guess what we're saying is we want... You know, he can't be his fa- our father's Joe Biden. Right. <laughs> you know, like he has to, like, yeah. I, we got, come on, man. I yeah. just had to say, what clicked for me this weekend is I just cannot believe that these cattle calls, people are going to have to listen to up to 19, 20, 21, 22 speeches. That is terrible. There was a, not just for the speaker, <laughs> not just for the people in the room, but for the speakers. If you're dead last, like, we, we need to find a, a, a system for grading these people on a curve. You can't sit in a room for and again, 10 hours. This is as, as all these candidates are starting to prepare for the debates and honing their debate strategy. If you go into that debate thinking that you're just going to go up there, answer questions, be on your message, talk about your policies, and that that's going to make a difference, you're wrong. At the same time, you don't want to be one of those people who gets attention at the debate by lighting yourself on fire <laughs> like Donald Trump. Like, worked for him. It's probably not going to work for a Democrat, right? Like, Condon's not going to get you noticed at a debate or some zinger about Donald Trump. Or it might in the wrong or way. Or it, it might in the wrong way. Or some, like, you know, the best zinger against Donald Trump. That's not going to get you noticed. But you've got to find a way at these debates where there's going to be 10, person, 10 people on stage every night to differentiate yourself in a way that advances your candidacy um, and separates you from the rest of the pack without getting too cheesy or strident. And uh, and one of the reasons that's going to be challenging for many of these candidates is they don't have that argument. It doesn't exist, and they will discover it at the fucking debate. Yeah. The, uh, this is not your father's Oldsmobile ad seems to have debuted in 1988. So that was a, a previous Biden campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. The, uh, there was a do quiz, with that information whatever you want. There was a quiz on time.com where you had to just type in from memory all the Democratic candidates, and uh, I did fine. <laughs> Thanks. It was fun though. It was a fun thing. It was fun though. That that O'Rourke was hard to type. I feel like it didn't register my apostrophe properly, so I didn't really get the credit for it. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, so the New York Times published a piece over the weekend about California's earlier 2020 primary that quotes Democratic strategist Chris Lehane saying that the best strategy for the candidates who want to win California is still a pretty simple one, win Iowa. Um, and I thought this was interesting because another Times piece over the weekend by Jonathan Martin argued that, quote, the explosive growth of social media has nationalized the race and made Iowa and New Hampshire less important than they used to be. J. Mart wrote that, quote, the feedback loop between the Internet and television news is the most powerful tidal force in politics. Uh, Tommy, who's right here? I, I don't know who's right in this piece. I'm not going to make a prediction. I think it will be very hard to argue that uh, Iowa is not absolutely critical to whoever wins this nomination somewhere in uh, early February. I mean, like, there's just no way that you can sp- raise enough money to spend it on a real organization on Super Tuesday to win California unless you have a ton of momentum going into it. It's also just sort of 
it's the kind of thing where, well, there's only one way for it to be really shown to be a true prediction, and that is if the nominee of the Democratic Party does not do well in Iowa or New Hampshire. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I'm very, I, I'm sympathetic to the Dan argument that basically says in the effort to make other states like California more important in the process, uh, it's ended up making places like Iowa and New Hampshire more significant because it's so hard to compete in a place like California. It's yeah. so hard to get people to knock on doors. Every, you know, There's so many votes at stake after Iowa and New Hampshire that uh, doing well there will have a big impact. I think J-Mart makes a good point that um, social media, cable news, and the fact that more people are more engaged than ever before because of Donald Trump and his presidency um, sort of helps nationalize the primary in a way that it hasn't been before. And so you do see these candidates trying their hardest to find these viral moments. And part of that is because there's an incentive to do it because it helps in the national polls. It helps you raise money among grassroots donors. Um, but I think if we, even if we look back to 2018, um, some candidates, some Democratic candidates running in some of these Senate and House races had these ads that went viral, had these viral moments where like sensations on Twitter raised a whole bunch of money and did not win. And some of them did. Um, but I do think that if you asked a lot of these campaigns, any of the campaigns, the Democratic campaigns, they would tell you that there is no substitute for having a ground game and having a real organization in Iowa, especially to a lesser extent, New Hampshire and, and South Carolina. But, you know, you see Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke have invested a ton of money in a lot of staff in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Pete Buttigieg, now that he's going to raise a shitload of money is starting to ramp up and put a lot of staff in Iowa as well. I think a lot of these candidates, and, and Bernie has always had a, a big organization, I think a lot of these candidates are realizing that if you, you know, we're, it's still early right now in May. And I think it makes sense that right now a lot of them are going around the country, going to these different cattle calls, going to California. I think if you, this story is going to look a little different in October, November, December, totally. when they're camping out in Iowa for weeks at a time. The other piece of this too is it's... It's actually maybe not so fine. It's not so hard a distinction in the sense that you're when you're campaigning nationally, you're campaigning in Iowa too now. You know that that they're part of this nationalization of the politics. So you, Iowa and New Hampshire can remain incredibly important while at the same time competing nationally is part of how you get votes in early states when so much of your interactions with candidates are not person to person or face to face, but through Twitter, through social media, through what you see on television. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'd say Pete, Mayor Pete is a top tier candidate because of that CNN town hall and because he did a ton of national press. Beto kind of a is, fuck you to Dan Pfeiffer. Beto is a candidate because of social media and that NFL speech that went viral, right? Kamala Harris is known because we all saw her viral moment from various hearings. None of them will be president if they don't do well in Iowa, New Hampshire. And I think that is the key distinction. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and you've seen this, Tommy, having been in Iowa and, and worked in Iowa. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if, you know, there's a there's a bunch of voters who um, some viral moment makes them pay attention to a candidate. And if a pollster calls them, they'll say, yeah, I saw that candidate. I see an in town hall and I really like them and I'm interested and I want to learn more. And maybe I'd support them right now. Does do those opinions change when you start meeting candidates one on one in these events? Is 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 one on one interaction with the candidate still sort of the most powerful driver of the vote depends on the candidate <laughs> <laughs> well good for, for better for worse yeah i mean i think undoubtedly i mean look iowa caucus goers are political junkies you know they're watching the cnn town halls they're reading the national news right like they're just yeah. like us but they have this incredible uh 
honor, privilege sure. of meeting these people one on one. And I do think that like when you see someone in a room, when you get to ask them a hard question, that will help you make up your mind. Yeah. Not just like them, but decide, okay, I'm gonna caucus for you, I'm gonna volunteer for you. You know, it's also we get a little taste of that here, uh, in the sense that we've had I think roughly 4,000 of the 6,000 Democratic candidates come through our office. Yeah, we're about and, two thirds of the way through. And uh, <laughs> maybe there's like six lined up outside waiting for us to be done. But uh, I see some. I see a man with a condon sign out there. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the condon sign. <laughs> there's actually there's actually um, uh, scientifically there is no proven example of an organically existing condon sign. They are 100% manufactured and carried with the campaign. <sighs> but. Uh, you know, we see that that candidates come through here and, you know, they've some I think there've been better interviews and worse interviews and they've been more revealing or less revealing. And then we've also seen what they're like when they're interacting with the like 40 political junkies that are a crooked excited to meet them. And some of them, they'll charm the pants off of you. And some of them, it's like goldfish. <laughs> you know, it's part of it. We've talked about Tune it. Tune into this week's Love It or Leave It to hear which is which. There, look, there are <laughs> candidates. The mic, the, the mics and cameras turn off. I'm like, that person's super cool. Would love to hang out with that person. And there's some of those said like, guys, you got to take the picture. They're here. You know what I mean? Let's let's be honest. Let's not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. When we return, we will have Tommy's interview with London Mayor Sadiq Khan, and be sure to stick around after that interview for Tommy's conversation with This Land host Rebecca Nagel. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
On the line, all the way from London, England, is Mayor Sadiq Khan. Mayor Khan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be on, your, on, the, on the podcast. Can I just apologize at the outset? Uh, last year, you guys were in London as part of your European uh, tour, and I couldn't make it. And I'm uh, really sorry for that, but I'm really pleased I caught up with you today. I wanted to reassure you. I'm not in the habit of snubbing Americans. Uh, it's just one particular one that I snub. <laughs> well, you are incredibly kind to apologize. It was not necessary at all. But I noticed you have um, a new pen pal named Donald Trump. Uh, you, you wrote uh, of a very long, uh, sternly worded op-ed this morning. Um, why did you want to make this case uh, about Donald Trump before he touched ground in the United Kingdom? Well, the thing that concerns me is, uh, I'm not sure if your listeners realize this, but Donald Trump basically is the poster boy for the far-right movement around the world. And um, he and I first came into interaction in actually during his campaign when he basically decided that he was going to ban Muslims from coming into the USA. But he's going to make an exception for me because I was the mayor of London. And the point I made in a polite, courteous way was there's nothing exceptional about me. I think banning Muslims from going to the USA is a bad policy. Uh, I know many Americans who are proud to be Americans, but also proud Muslims. Uh, and that's not the sort of America those of us who love America know. And over the last uh, few months and a couple of years, we've seen a number of policies uh, that your president has announced, but also some of the things that he has said, which do cause concern to those of us in London, those of us in the UK, and those of us in Europe. And you'll know that actually the office of the President of the USA is really special. It's probably one of the most, you know, it is the most unique role in the world. The ripples of what is said by the President of the USA, what the President of the USA does, are felt all around the world. And I'm afraid a number of things he has said and done are causing problems to those of us, you know, a number of thousand miles away. And there are also, I'm afraid, people in Hungary, people in France, uh, people in Italy, people in the UK and across the Western world who are having their views, which are abhorrent, normalized and mainstreamed because of some of the things uh, Donald Trump has said and done. Yeah. I mean, that's why that was so interesting about the piece was, you you make this this uh, global case against him, and you tied him to nationalists and far right leaders like Viktor Orban or Marine Le Pen. I mean, do you see Trump as a piece of a a larger puzzle that is tied together somehow? Well, if you study history, um, not just contemporary, but go back decades, what is the far right playbook? The far right playbook is what you pick on minority communities, you pick on marginalized communities in order to manufacture an enemy. Yep. You fabricate lies in order to stoke up fears. And what does that lead to? That leads to a promotion of hatred of immigrants. It also can lead to, we've seen it in uh, the UK, we've seen it in Hungary, France, uh, Italy, and in the USA, sympathy for white supremacists. And you'll see other policies uh, which cause huge concern, uh, you know, attacking women's reproductive rights, uh, rolling back some of the progress made in LGBT rights. And so the assumption we all made is progress is one way. And our impatience has been the lack of pace towards progress on gender inequality, on LGBT rights, on pluralism. You now have a situation where not simply are we not making progress, but we are going backwards. And so 
you know, my piece was uh, articulating the views of not just Londoners, but views of many, many decent Americans I speak to on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, so historically, the U.S.-U.K. alliance has been viewed as special, extraordinarily close. Um, there are reports that a quarter million people are planning to show up to protest President Trump's visit. What do you think that says about the state of the U.S.-U.K. relationship? Well, it's really important to distinguish what we think about Americans versus the views many Londoners and British people have about your current president. It is a fact that not just myself, many, many people in, in my country love America, love Americans, love the culture. Many of us study and revere some of the things your founding fathers said. Some of us, you know, love your contemporary presidents uh, in more recent times, from Roosevelt to Eisenhower, from Kennedy to Obama, and of course, the one and only Jed Bartlett. Uh, but, <laughs> but the point is that, that you've got a situation where many of the things that have been said and done by Donald Trump cause huge offense. And um, I'm afraid it is the case um, that, uh, you know, the reputation of America isn't as great as it has been in the past because of the actions of this president. That's not to take away from the fact that we'll be commemorating the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. Uh, you'll have also the Prime Minister of Canada uh, here in uh, our country. There are others coming from Australia, uh, from New Zealand, uh, President Macron. That's really important. I think the frustration amongst uh, Londoners and uh, other people around the country is that President Trump's been given a state uh, invitation as a state visit. There'll be a state banquet tonight. And the view is, and I agree with his view, the red carpet and all that goes with a state visit is not an honor that should be bestowed on this president. Yeah. So first of all, tough hit on uh, President Santos and Jimmy Smith, who, you know, deserves a shout out <laughs> as well. But so, I mean, in your op-ed, you talked He's about... Okay as well. Yes. Uh, you called on Theresa May to issue a rejection of this far-right agenda and, you know, said that his views are incompatible with British values. And I, of course, you know, agree with the, the incompatibility point. Um, with respect to the state visit, you know, I mean, clearly... Prime Minister May made this choice to try to curry favor with the Trump administration early on. I, I do, don't know if she believes it's paid dividends. Uh, I suspect not. But, I mean, do you worry at all that some sort of rebuke of him while he's over there could lead to a vindictive punishment in response, like the tariffs he just slapped on Mexico for no clear reason? Really good question. Look, look my view is this in relation to the USA and the special relationship. We see the USA as our best friends, as our you know, best mate. And my view is that the expectations we have of a best mate, a best friend, are higher than the expectations of an acquaintance or a normal friend. So the expectations we have of each other are higher than we'd expect from other countries who aren't our closest allies and uh, with whom we don't have a special relationship. That means, surely, uh, that we must have a relationship where we can call each other out. We can have a relationship of honesty and candor. And that means if we think that you know, a best friend is acting in a manner that's not in their interest, not in our interest, we disagree with it. We should say, listen, you know, I think you're wrong on issue A, on, on issue B. Of course, at times of adversity, we'll be with you. But I've got to tell you, I think you're making a mistake here. And, you know, my concern has been that uh, our prime minister, and your, your analysis is spot on. It was for self-interest because uh, the prime minister thought it would make her look, you know, like a world leader, particularly with concerns post-Brexit. And it's backfired. And uh, I think what it's led to is a situation where Donald Trump uh, feels he can say and do anything 
because others will be sycophants. And I think it's important. We're not asking for Theresa May. I'm not asking for her to do a, sort of a Hugh Grant in Love Actually. <laughs> but I think what's important is that, you know, she, in robust terms, says, I disagree with you rolling back on the rights of uh, women on, and, you know, around abortion. I disagree with your views on LGBT rights. I think it's wrong for you to separate children from their uh, parents. You know what? Muslims can be Westerners and uh, Muslim. By the way, you know, protectionism doesn't work. And I think the concern I have with, you know, pop politicians nowadays who are becoming popular is rather than addressing the fears people have, they play on them. And you see it with uh, Donald Trump, you see it with Nigel Farage, you see it in Hungary, you see it in Italy, you see it in France. And one of the criticisms I have of my side, the progressive left, is, you know, we've got to get on the pitch. We've got to take on these issues. We've got to address people's fears. We've got to educate the public in a, in a non-patronizing way. Public education is really important. But we can't vacate the pitch because we're scared of upsetting Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Nigel Farage. I mean, Mr. Mayor, when... when President Trump sort of ham-handedly endorses a far-right politician like Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage. Do you think it helps them? I mean, are, are British citizens okay with Trump just diving into your most sensitive political debates time after time? Well, it, it depends. You see, what, let me tell you an interesting, uh, interesting fact, which is when President Obama uh, made the point, which everybody agrees with, by the way, if the UK leaves the European Union, uh, your power will be less than it is afterwards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that, you know, and President Trump, not, sorry, President Obama, not unreasonably was saying that, you know, uh, you, you could well be lower down the pecking order because of your size versus the European Union. And the right wing in the UK, including Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, rebuked President Obama for having the audacity to make a perfectly reasonable point about the impact of us leaving the EU. Lo and behold, those very same people who criticized President Obama for, quote-unquote, interfering with British politics are now jumping over backwards because uh, President Donald Trump uh, has said that Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson will be wonderful, in Boris Johnson's case, wonderful prime minister, in Nigel Farage's case, should be leading UK negotiations with the European Union. And the point I make to those people is what source for the goose is source for the gander. You can't, on the one hand, criticise President A when he says something about your country, but then welcome what President B says about your country because you may well like him. And I think, look, it's up to the Conservative membership to decide whether it's a good or bad thing having Donald Trump's endorsement. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the next Prime Minister of that country won't be chosen by the British public. Uh, he or she will be chosen by conservative MPs and conservative members, and they are uh, their profile is quite elderly, mm-hmm. uh, quite right-wing, not representative of the country. As far as the country is concerned, you know, I'm not sure if it is a you know huge badge of endorsement having Donald Trump, you know, you know, saying that you're his guy. Yeah, certainly didn't help him hawk uh, Trump stakes. So we'll see. Um, <laughs> so I want to go back to something you said earlier. I mean, what does it mean in your in your view for progressives to get on the pitch? Like what can well-meaning people do in the United States and Europe to stop the rise of these right wing populist movements that seem to be spreading across Europe? Look, we've got to accept we've got to accept that there are decent, genuine people who are voting for Brexit who are voting for Trump, who are voting for Le Pen in, in France and on in Hungary and elsewhere. We've got to accept that we, you can't criticize voters for you know, being racist or being xenophobes. There's a very real reason why they're voting for these leaders. And the reason they're doing so is because they're, they're not seeing the fruits of globalization. 
they're seeing the consequences and they're uneasy about deindustrialization. They're worried about the pace of change in some of our countries. And so what we have to do is understand that their concern is legitimate and then try and address them and meet the challenges head on. So, for example, if politician A is saying, you know what, yes, it's true, the car factory where you worked has closed down, but don't worry, when I become the president or I, we leave the European Union, I'll reopen them. It's got to be explained in a flight courteous way. That, you know, you can't now, in, in, you know, realistically in, in the UK, build cars and be competitive with, you know, the Far East or with countries where they've got a bigger market than we have. And we've got, you've got to realize in countries like ours and, and the USA, low-skilled, low-paid jobs are the future of our economies. We've got to have high-skilled, well-paid jobs. So we've got to think about and work on what are the emerging markets. So the green agenda is very important. So in London, we have policies to meet the needs of not just climate change, but poor quality air, and that's leading to jobs being created in relation to low-carbon green jobs. So we want you know, people who are tech-savvy, people who have the skills to come to London and work with us with the solutions of some of the challenges we have. And the same applies to the UK, the USA, and other countries in the Western world. We, we can't have a future where our workforce is poorly educated and is doing you know, jobs with poor salaries because realistically, we can't compete with those countries that can do this, these pieces of work much cheaper, particularly with automation. And I don't think we should be afraid of you know, the fourth industrial revolution. We should, you know, we should you know, surf the wave and, and make sure our workforces are ready. And my criticism of my side is we're not engaging with the public, spending time educating them, spending time finding solutions. What we're doing is vacating their pitch and criticizing the voters for choosing people who play on their fears. Yeah. And I think we've got to get on the pitch. And that means making an emotional connection with the voter, understanding where they're coming from, and then meet head on people like Donald Trump, Nigel Farage, and others around the world. Yeah, well, we, we have like uh, three football clubs worth of players on our pitch right now. So if you want to borrow some, we can, we can probably <laughs> do like a Lend-Lease program, go back in time a little bit. Um, so, I mean, you talked about the economic future that, that's getting complicated by globalism. I mean, it's certainly, I, I think Brexit could make that economic future even more complicated. Um, how is that debate, fight, I don't even know what to call it at this point, impacted the people you represent in London? And do you think there's an end in sight? I think, I think our country is uh, divided. I think our country is uh, uh, unequal. I think the, there are similarities between the UK and the USA. When you look at the, the sort of uh, parts of the USA that voted for Trump, we've got a similar comparison in the UK that voted to leave the European Union. Um, and uh, that's a problem. And uh, I'm afraid what's happening is uh, uh, unrealistic promises have been made by politicians here, the likes of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. And, um, you know, the public who voted and supported them won't simply be annoyed uh, when those promises aren't met. They're going to be angry. And that's what causes me huge uh, concern. I can't see a short-term prosperous future for my country, bearing in mind some of the toxicity of the discussion taking place. Uh, some of the candidates in the Conservative leadership are promising that uh, they will uh, uh, leave the European Union even without a deal. Catastrophic for the UK economy, catastrophic for jobs, wealth and prosperity. Big promise to make. What will happen if, it doesn't happen, if, if we don't leave on October 31st, which is the next extension? People are going to be angry. And so what it leads to, Tommy, is the public being further cynical about politicians, which makes our life much harder as mainstream politicians, which allows the far right 
to exploit this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they'll blame the European Union, they'll blame immigration, they'll blame mainstream politicians. And what, what we should really worry about is when you've got office holders criticizing judges, office holders criticizing the free press, office holders who should be talking about, you know, making deals with countries, the importance of multilateralism, walking away from a, you know, Paris Accord, the Climate Change Agreement, walking away from a deal to remove nuclear weapons from Iran, walking away from a roadmap that leads to peace in the Middle East, walking away from the European Union, arguably you know, the most successful trading bloc uh, that the world's ever seen. But also in the last 70 years, you know what? We've not had a war in mainstream Europe. And so it does worry me the fact that the, you know, the, the, the right part of the spectrum of politics is setting the agenda. But what worries me more is that the fruits of this will be exploited by the far right. And these fruits are poisonous. Yeah, agreed. Um, final question, and thank you again for your time. I mean, we, we've had this big debate in the United States recently about whether Donald Trump is an aberration of history or just sort of the latest version of the modern Republican Party. And, and certainly it's not the first time that racism or xenophobia has driven U.S. politics. Unfortunately, that's something we've seen time and time again. But the the conversation does feel supercharged these days by Fox News uh, and the increasingly white nationalist content you're seeing on that channel. Um, have, have you guys seen a similar evolution uh, in the media in the UK, specifically from Murdoch-owned news outlets? I mean, are, are they exacerbating the problem uh, in your political system the way Fox News is in ours? Lots of similarities between the UK and the US. There's a saying we used to have, which is, you know, um, the, the, the UK is, is 10 years behind the USA. So what happened in the USA, we see it a few years later. And so what we've seen in the UK is now what you saw in the USA with the Tea Party, uh, the, you know, uh, impacting on the politics of the Republican Party. You'll see in the UK the Brexit Party, a new party that Nigel Farage has formed, impacting the politics of the Conservative Party. You're seeing the, uh, the proliferation of social media, completely no checks and balances. Uh, we've seen how... Facebook can be exploited. We've seen how foreign countries can exploit referenda, can use, you know, um, automation bots to get messages amplified. And so it's a big concern we've got. So we've seen, for example, some of the work that's happened in the USA, looking at the lessons to be learned from the 2016 election. Uh, We know the role now of uh, of Russia in that. We're seeing now... Uh, some revelation about the impact, uh, the consequences of foreign intervention and the impact we know in in the referendum in 2016 here. So there are lots of similarities. The challenge we have, uh, somebody who, you know, is a mainstream politician, is how we make sure that we reach the public. And uh, one of the things we've got to accept as progressive politicians on the left is the medium sometimes is not a medium we find attractive. The reality is many of my voters uh, do read the Murdoch Press. Many of my voters, Londoners, do go on some of those websites that you and I may not find uh, desirable. Uh, Similarly, if you want to be the president of the USA and you're a Democrat, it's a fact you've got to accept that many of the voters you need to persuade to vote for you watch Fox News. And that's one of the conundrums that we have. And I think we've got to address it head on. And I've got no problem talking to, uh, you know, media groups or journalists who work for, you know, organizations that are perceived as being right-wing. I think it's important because it gets me to an audience otherwise wouldn't get. So, 
the medium is important, Tommy, because without that, we're just an echo chamber. You know, there's no point me simply speaking to my tribe. There's no point somebody aspiring to be the next president from the Democratic Party just speaking to his or her tribe. We've got to persuade people from another tribe, people who stay at home, stayed at home last time, people who voted for, you know, the, the Tory party, the Conservative party in my country or for Donald Trump in, in your country, to come back to us. And so it's really important we do so. There's a, there's a view I have, which is, you know, that, that, you know, there's no such thing as our people being a small tent with just our tribe. Our people should be the entire electorate. And so that's why we've got to use the tools we've got to expose where, they, where, where there are lies being told, expose where there's fabrication, interference, expose where laws are being broken, but at the same time realize that the conventional tools of reaching voters um, has changed and as the, those conventions aren't there anymore. And we've got to evolve to make sure we're, we continue to be relevant to the voters. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Khan, thank you for your time and thank you for uh, making such a clear case about the, uh, the disconcerting rise of these far-right political leaders. It is one of the defining issues of our time that I don't think is talked about enough, and uh, I really appreciate hearing from you about it. It's a pleasure. Speak to you soon. Take care, mate. I am so excited to be here with Rebecca Nagel, the host, the creator of our new podcast, This Land. Uh, we are here in the Crooked Media Studios in Los Angeles, which we have been describing as 70s cable access. Uh, I That's the vibe I'm getting. That's kind of the vibe. Okay, cool. Why did you want to make This Land? I think it's a history and a story with uh, really high stakes in the present day that m- most people don't know about. Mm-hmm. You know, And so when we're talking about um, even just this Supreme Court case that impacts the treaty rights of five tribes and half the land in Oklahoma, wow. it's barely been covered by the mainstream media. And then when we get deeper into the story, we're talking about the history of um, our specific tribes, like what's happened to our land in Oklahoma. It's stuff that, you know, is the foundation of American history, but something that's not taught, that people haven't heard about. And so I think in a bigger picture, you know, the wall we kind of hit as Native Americans is that when our cases are in front of the Supreme Court or our issues are being debated on the floor of Congress, it's happening in a country where the public doesn't have a basic understanding of what those rights are and mm-hmm. what those legal issues are. And so it makes it really hard for us to drum up public support because we need people to know about these issues and to understand yeah. for lawmakers to pay attention, frankly. Yeah. Lawmakers would probably rather ignore the very ugly history uh, they're being presented yeah. with. Or, yeah. or have the same just blanket ignorance as the rest of the country. Yeah. I know you you know you have a deep family connection to this story. You're an expert, uh, you're a journalist and activist. But like was there anything you've learned that surprised you during the process? Um I mean, I think, you know, we we went out and I think one of the things I'm really proud about about the podcast is just all of the voices that we've been able to bring to the table. So mm-hmm. from, you know, um, the chief and AG of Muscogee Creek Nation, like our experts, our historians, but also like our elders, our first language speakers, like our family. And I think just over and over again, um, what I heard from people is just how how important our relationship and our connection to the land where we are in Oklahoma mm-hmm. is and how much this case means to everyone. Yeah. Even the music is beautiful. and Yeah. It's made by a Chickasaw composer. Composer Gerard Tate. That's really cool. Um, what do you hope people take away from the show? 
I mean, like big picture, I want people to kind of have this moment of, oh, crap. I wasn't paying attention to federal Indian law. I wasn't paying attention to what's happening in the courts and the rights of Native Americans. And I need to be not just because it impacts Native Americans, but because it impacts everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, when the far right wants to tinker with a little piece of the Constitution, they use federal Indian law to do it because Mm -hmm. nobody is paying attention. Yeah. And I I feel like there are probably a lot of big muddied interests out there who don't want people to listen to this show. Yeah. Can we talk about who those interests are and, and what their stake <laughs> is in this case? Yeah. And so, I mean, like most things, it comes down to money. But basically, the opposition, the people who have lined up against the tribes and don't want the tribe to win are the Trump administration, oil and gas companies, and the state of Oklahoma. And then there are also, you know, some like sheriff associations and like cattle ranchers that also filed briefs. But those are the big players. And, you know, eastern Oklahoma, the land that's impacted by this case, sits on one of the country's largest oil and gas reserves. And so if your bottom line is money and profit, you don't want that land to be tribal land. And so that's one of the big issues that's lining up against tribes in this case, but also in general. I mean, a crazy statistic that I think most people don't realize is that our tribes occupy 2% of land in the United States, and that land represents a fifth of all oil and gas reserves in the U.S. Wow. Tribes also sit on, like, I think, is it like a third, really, I think a third to half of coal west of the Mississippi. Hmm. And so even though we have a small amount of land, there's a vast amount of natural resources And there is a concerted effort to open that land up to extraction. I mean, do do people who live on those lands feel like there's a target on their back from these, you know, big oil and gas companies? I mean, I think it's a case by case basis, depending on the tribe. I mean, it doesn't mean that just because land is a reservation, no oil is ever drilled there. It just means that um, it's complicated and it depends on the land. But tribes often have say in what can happen. I think the bigger picture of what's going on it's actually it's like tragically basic i think Mm -hmm. there's always been a desire for more and more native land and even though i think people think that that's was like a chapter of history instead of something that's ongoing and happening today and so um when you look at some of the theories that the far right is trying to promote in the courts or even some of the policies that the trump administration is passing there's this sort of end goal to get rid of tribes and Mm -hmm. for there to no longer be uh sovereign nations within the the United States that have these land rights. Wow. It's a great story because this is a complicated case, right? There, there's, yeah. a, there's a murder that's more recent. There's a murder that happened in the past. Yeah. I feel like justice is a complicated question in in, in any discussion uh, like this. But what does justice look like to you in, in this case? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about this case, I think people could hear about it where it's like, oh, my gosh, like there are these five tribes in Oklahoma. It's like half the land. And like, of course, the Supreme Court should give that land back to the tribes. Of course, it should be returned. And that's actually not what this case is about. The truth is, is that our treaty rights, our legal rights to that land was never terminated. It was never ended. It was never dissolved by Congress. And so we're not asking for anything to be returned or given back. We're just asking for our legal rights to our land to be acknowledged. Do people who are living this day to day have faith in the justice system to deliver a just outcome? Oh, man. So overall, um, our win rate at the Supreme Court uh, is about 30 percent. So if you're a tribe and you're going up to the Supreme Court, you have about a one in three chance of winning. Wow. Wow. Um, How 
should we additionally browbeat the shit out of people to <laughs> subscribe and download this show? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're interested in the story, you want more people to hear about it, um, you can check it out at thislandpodcast.com and then uh, subscribe and listen wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you do that, like, extra step of leaving a review, a uh, rating, um, it helps other people see it. That's great. And I have to say, I've listened to the first episode. My wife has, uh, some select family members have. And it's like, it's a gripping, amazing story yeah. told beautifully by you. So yeah. thank you for, for doing it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Mayor Sid- What is this? This is the Oldsmobile ad? Oh. Not your father's Oldsmobile? What's funny is now that's from 1988, so it clearly is your father's Oldsmobile. <laughs> Are there... Are any of our father's Oldsmobiles still around? I never <laughs> had an Oldsmobile. Oldsmobile is a retired brand. Oldsmobile is a retired brand now, right? I don't think you can get it anymore. Right, I think it's not. And also, I, I don't understand what's going on with Buick. I, like, I, I wish Buick... Come on, like Buick's could be cool. Deliver. Buick's aren't... People don't... Th- I think Buick's are fine. I don't understand why... The Buick... You, you, Buick's are cool. Okay, well, the, we're, we're ending with the Buick ad. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks to Mayor Sadiq Khan, and thanks to Rebecca Nagel for joining us today, and uh, we'll see you on the road. list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.